I'd like to introduce our speaker tonight, Jody. Hi, I'm Jody, and I'm a grateful, abstaining, compulsive overeater. And um, thank you so much for asking me to speak, although it's uh, always so intimidating when you know it's going to be recorded. Um, I'm sure everyone has said that, but uh, anyway. I also um, am very always nervous in the role of speaking, even though I've been around a long time, because... um, I actually owe my life uh, to Overuse Anonymous, so I always want it to be good and meaningful. And this is the first time that I've been at a um, uh, meeting where there's been a newcomer that stood up and had my name, so that was uh, very nice. Um, I think what I'll do first, uh, I know I'm going to try to keep it very simple tonight, because I'm one of the old-timers, so I've been, in a, I've been around for a while. Um, but um, the format of you know, what it was like and what happened and what I'm like now, I'll probably follow that pretty much. But I would like to just get some statistics out of the way first, so you're not, I, you might get lost in my story, but um, uh, I actually came into Overeaters Anonymous on April Fool's Day of 1977. And um, my current abstinence began March 1st of 1978. So there was a little time there when, uh, and I can tell you what happened during that time. Uh, I I turned 61 um, couple of months ago, and I, I really probably wouldn't be either physically alive, certainly not emotionally or spiritually alive, had it not been for what I learned in um, these rooms. So, now I'll backtrack. Um, I'm one of those that is sort of convinced that I was an overeater at birth, you know, like I came in with not just a predisposition toward this, uh, although I do come from, um, certainly both parents were compulsive overeaters, and I have an older sister who's a compulsive overeater, but, uh, I mean, my definition of what a compulsive overeater is, not theirs. Um, so I, it's kind of a miracle that I, I discovered this program uh, in, in many ways. I grew up um, basically uh, in a, in a, on a ranch in South Texas. Forgive the accent. I've, I've been out here since 1965, but um, all you have to do is talk home for three minutes and it comes back. Anyway, um, I, I, I'm what I kind of uh, classify as a, both a volume and a competitive eater. My younger brother, um, if he could eat six hot dogs, well, then I could eat seven, and I would die doing it. Uh, I mean, it was a, it was a, uh, uh, it was a mission. Uh, <laughs> you know, some people have other goals in life, but I, <laughs> I was into um, competitive eating at a fairly early age. Um, 
I didn't have the manifestation of weight until flash forward to my first pregnancy and my first marriage. Um, I, I, I think I was oblivious to quantities. I, I think, you know, I, I, in a small um, Texas town, one has to be on the girls' basketball, volleyball track. I was junior Olympic star, and when I was 12, I set a national record for a 75-yard dash that was not broken until um, 10 years later by a girl from Oklahoma. So, I mean, I, I was probably, uh, now that I think back, probably a what, what we're calling now something else, but I was a very hyperactive child. So I didn't have the manifestation of weight. Um, in my first marriage, when um, I'm leaving out a lot, but but um, I think it's important to know that I always needed more. I always needed needed more. I always needed to have. I always needed to know that there was going to be more, and um, that's the way I ate. When I became pregnant, um, there was a just built-in excuse, and I certainly wasn't very active, and there were all the jokes about eating for. So I don't know whether any of or some of you may know that the the um, the average kind of weight gain for someone who's carrying a child is 20, 25, kind of, maybe you could push 30. So just to give you some idea, I gained 85 pounds in my first pregnancy. And as a result, my my son... Uh, my first son was um, trapped in the birth canal for, and I I had a 36 hours of labor. Um, uh, you know, I'm 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 five three and maybe a quarter, maybe not even that now at my age. I mean, you know, you know how you settle. Um, anyway, uh, they had to take him with forceps, and and I. Uh, a saddle block that was done. He's 40 years old now. So in those days, they did a saddle block. So you, you had kind of like no feeling in the, you know, like from the waist down. And they had given me two saddle blocks, you know. And you're not supposed to lift your head uh, from the pillow because you get these massive headaches if you've had one of these injections into your spine. So they, so I had to lie flat on my back. But when I first saw him, because he was so bruised, I mean, I thought, you know, I've, it was, it was horrible. Um, so three years later, another husband, another son, um, the family doctor at that time, the man who brought my oldest son into the world, said, okay, so, you know, you have this problem, you know, with eating, and 
what we're going to do is we're going to put you on Desbutal Gradumet. At that particular time, there was a, there was a, gosh, I had no idea I was going to be talking about my pregnancies. That's interesting. Um, and I don't know why, but it's, it's really when the weight manifested. And I guess that's why. Um, and to prevent the weight from manifesting in the second pregnancy, I was to be on Desbutal Gradumet throughout the pregnancy. It was safe. It was fine. Only an upper in it and a downer. So, you know. Um, and I was vigilant about, I mean rigid, about what I ate during that pregnancy. And consequently, um, I, you know, I, I gained maybe the standard amount, and then he he weighed almost 10 pounds and sort of shot out like a cannon. So uh, that was my 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 second son. But what I decided somewhere around that time was that there was no way to keep my appetite and my hunger at bay unless I just went on these amphetamines permanently. And it was totally endorsed. uh, And so that's what I was going to do. And that's what I did. Um, I, I am one of those that got into these rooms because I couldn't stop eating. Is, is, is guess what I'm leading up to. I could not stop eating. I could control it. I could diet. I could take whatever the latest, you know, black beauties, whatever the latest thing for speed that didn't make you hungry was. I could do that and I could control it. But I left unguided by outside, you know, stimulants, I couldn't, I couldn't do anything about it. So, um, I, I got to, I came to Northern California in 65 and then located down here in 1968. A woman alone, two sons, working, um, doing a acting career uh, I was I won't even go into that phase of my life because it's been so long ago but um, I was taking a yoga class when I was um, 30 I was 35 because I didn't get to Overeaters Anonymous until I was 36 and I was taking this class, and there was somebody in the class. I mean, certainly God put her there. And she saw me go, because when, when, when drugs and alcohol, amphetamines and pot, everything left me, quit me, uh, I had a full-blown, I was a full-blown convulsive over your Always, but then I was really one because I had nothing to protect myself against this insatiable um, hunger. 
So there was someone in this class that saw me bust out of these leotards, and um, and she said, "I, you know, I, I'm in another program, but I know that this one exists, and um, I've never been able to get it, but I'll take you to a meeting." And she did. And she took me to at that time in 1977. There was a big Sunday night meeting at Crescent Heights um, and I went in to this meeting and I sat on the back row and she sat beside me and I don't remember much of what was said so from now on I'm going to tell you about my life in OA uh, well actually you know what let me just tell you a couple of more things just to make sure you understand that I qualify for a seat here um, <laughs> Along the lines of my controlling, my compulsive overeating, I um, I would fly back to Texas to get my next supply of pills because that's the way I was controlling it, and and then I would have to fly back again. It became very expensive, and so one of the things one of my sponsees always tells me is that I have to include is that I married a doctor out here so I you know he could keep my supply going and that's kind of what separates me from the other Jodies that you might hear speaking because that's I, I haven't heard that part of my story ever here but anyway um, I, I did that I used to you know drive around this city you know just to all kinds of uh, places if in case they happen to be out of something that I needed. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm the one that went to, I'm also the one that you may have heard of, that went to six different Winchell's Donut stores because they were out of apple fritters. And at any other time, at any other time in my life, uh, certainly since I've been in here, I would have probably thought that was, a sign, you know, that maybe I wasn't supposed to have one, but I didn't think it then. And um, and as a matter of fact, thought that what the hell is? You know, I mean, I was I was angry about it. Um, I needed that fix, that particular fix at that particular time. So um, that shows my desperation. That shows my willfulness. That shows my being totally out of control control in this illness so she took me to this she took me to this meeting and she uh, never came back I mean she never came back to OA she was very happy that I wanted to come back but um, that's what I've seen a lot um, you know in terms of Overeaters Anonymous I I've I've certainly been sober longer, and I've been free of any kind of medications for longer than I've been abstinent in Overeaters Anonymous. But I really do believe this is the for me anyway. This is my experience has been this is the toughest program that I have to work. Um, other people might argue that Al-Anon is, uh, 
but I, I really believe that because of the cultural indoctrination and because of our social, more, that, that we need to eat, you know, and, and some of us, myself included, um, come from alcoholic families where the only spark of happiness was around celebrating food. I mean, uh, we had big fish fries and barbecue, and, and, and people were, certainly they were drinking, but they were, they were eating. So the, the, there's, they're happy memories. They're very happy memories uh, for me that are related to eating. Um, so, um, so my qualifications. Um, oh, I hope I haven't scared anybody off. Um, okay, so let me, let me get back on track here. All right, so I went to this meeting. And I sat on the back row, and I cried, and I cried, and I would go back. Every, I, I didn't know anything else to do. I didn't know. I didn't know that there was a directory. I didn't know that there were other meetings. No one approached me. I, no one said anything to me. Nobody. I, um, I, I'm trying to think if they were even doing. Are there any newcomers? But if they had, even if they had, and I had heard it, I wouldn't have stood up. I can tell you that right now. I was I was shocked that people were standing up and they were undressing emotionally in a way that was so real and so authentic and I had been you know playing all these roles and I'd been acting for years and years I knew how to be in somebody else's emotions I knew how to you know, create a character, but I had no idea who I was. I had no idea what I was about, what, what, who I was. I had no idea. And to hear these people in such humility, uh, Sunday after Sunday, because that's the only meeting I knew about, I knew where to park, I knew how to get in, I knew how to get out, um, uh, I was just in awe that people would be so vulnerable and so real. And um, when we, the first meeting when they, you know, held hands and at that time, in those days, they were doing the Lord's Prayer. And I, I had walked so far away from any of that God stuff. I didn't know that I would re- remember even the words. Um so I, I wasn't so much connect, you know, like I wasn't a God hater or anything, but I just, I was, I was so terrified, so terrified. Um, and, and, and how was, and how was I going to do this with whatever you all were telling me? How was I going to do it? So at that time they did have, uh, food plans gray sheet and that's the way I thought everybody in the room was doing it and pretty much everybody in the room I mean that's what I got you know when when I asked well what do you do and what's the diet and so in those days I would do you had you had to have 21 days of abstinence and then 
it, they had a little, little kind of guidelines, a little uh, piece of, um, a little brochure that said if you have 21 days, then you can give it away to somebody else. Well, I thought that one, well, that's a good deal. Nothing, I'll, you know, get right on that. But the thing is, I, I would get 21 days, or I would even get 42 days, but then, like a blackout kind of person, I would be in the market or I would be doing something and then all of a sudden I would just see how much I had eaten and so I'd have to start over. Start over. So, all right. So, you, know, you anybody that's a competitive eater is also a competitive competitive dieter is also a competitive you know well I, how am I when am I ever going to get a chance to you would think I would know from all that I've told you already but I didn't know that I was a true compulsive reader I did not know that yet I kept trying to put this diet together that this gray sheet diet and then I would fall off and get back on for the first nine ten months and in late 77, around around October of 77, um, a big new thing had just come out, and it was called liquid protein. So this is how I'm going to tell you I discovered that I was a real compulsive reader because I, um, <laughs> I'm going to make this as fast as I can. I knew what you'd said. I knew what, three meals a day, nothing in between. Blah, blah. So I was going to have these three vials of liquid protein three times a day, and that was going to be my abstinence, and that's what I went out to do. So I could take care of, you understand, what I had to do was I had to take care of the weight. That period. That's what I had to, I had to take care of the weight. So I went on it for um, 27 days. Religiously, no cheating, no anything, because I was going to come back here and let you see how well I'd done with my new abstinence. And um, it was it, it, it was accompanied. The liquid protein was accompanied by a little book called uh, The Last Chance Diet, which I read from cover to cover 400 times while I was you know had nothing else to do except these little vials. So <laughs> it was like uh, this was the answer. This was this was it. This was how, you know, I was going to solve the problem. It was just another form of diet pills, but I didn't know at the time. All right. So you could break your fast in a particular way. You know, uh, so many grains of oatmeal and a little slice of orange. And you had to break it this way because it was dangerous, you know, to be without food for um, almost 27 days. And you were supposed to know when it was time to break the fast because, you know, your body would tell. I, I forget all that now. But anyway, I did it exactly like it said, you know, two spoons of oatmeal and a little tiny um, orange slice. I had everything ready, you know, to break this fast. And and then what happened was at three, I went on a, what is classically thought of, I mean, you know, when you think about The Lost Weekend or any of the movies that, you know, show um, 
benders. Uh, you know, I know we say binge, but this was a bender with food. This was a, this was a, uh, I had 27 days to make up for. And uh, so I, I just ate nonstop, everything, everything. And it was probably the darkest hour because then I felt like I really couldn't come back to Overeaters Anonymous. And and something in me knew that this is where I had to be just from what I had heard, even in that 11 months. But I felt like I couldn't come back because I hadn't done it the way you suggested. And so I was lost. I mean, I, I, I was doomed to just eat like this and periodically maybe get control and then lose it again. I didn't know how I would do it. Um, so I, I just continued to gain all of the weight that I lost and then some. So it was um, probably late in January before I got back. And when I came back, um, I came back ready. I came back, and that's why I've never left, because I came back and I went up to the um, literature table and uh, uh, this wonderful woman, who probably was in her 70s at the time, uh, I just just had this great big smile and just said, well, welcome back. I mean, just, just. I thought I would be shamed. I thought I would be, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I was just welcomed back. And so I've never left. And um, then in March of that same year, I began my current abstinence. Now, um, the last time I weighed, uh, just like I don't have fat pictures I don't have I mean the last time I was willing to look I was at 199 so it it could have been more than that could have been 10 or 15 pounds more than that I don't know for certain Um, but I'm maintaining you know over a 60 pound weight loss and I have done that for many many years Um, but what I want to tell I think I stayed because I knew I was a real compulsive overeater. There was no doubt. I also stayed because after I had that first um, 21 days, I was able to give it away. So I think what has kept me here over and over again is is the ability to have something to give um, I mean I, I, can't, I can't make any of this I can't make anything up I can't I can tell you my experience and I can tell you what's happened to me um, and I can share my that experience uh, but I can't do anything beyond that and I can't do it wrong because it's just been my experience you know, I, I, in other words just saying the truth 
can be helpful sometimes. I mean, it actually can benefit somebody else. And to be able to have this, you know, a lot of what I've told you so far, provide some kind of help to somebody, it just is a big, you know, it was a, it was a major deal for me. So I then, being being competitive and overzealous as I am, uh, I sponsored a lot of people and, and it kept me around for a long time. And the other thing that really, really kept me here was I went to, in the in those early days, first five years actually, I went to three or five meetings a week, but I went to uh, a big book study, a, tw- um, a, a 12 and 12, a, uh, a, a writing meeting on um, 24 hours a day. So you have to understand, at that time, there was no OA literature. And so I still rely um, almost um, exclusively, as far as the literature is concerned, on the big book of Alcoholic Anonymous, because that's where I got rooted. And and I think because uh, those, those first hundred men and women were such desperate cases that I could... I mean, I could hear it more as a life or death issue because that's the kind of eater I was. I mean, I was I was an eater like like they were uh, drinkers. Um, I also, uh, although I, I wasn't that way at first when we were reading, but because I was one of the ones that said these guys, these. These men in 1935. Come on. I mean, the, the way it's written and the, the language, the way they kind of over. Now, um, I was just, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I, I might do this when when we go to questions. But I, I just something else popped out at me in terms of uh, uh, in the big book that made me realize. How, how important it was to be a service to somebody. Um, I, um, in the area of, of um, sponsorship, I guess another milestone for me was uh, my first fourth step. Um, not just the, the writing of the fourth step, but the, but the sharing with another human being the um, the secrets uh, and and in the fifth step uh, her reaction and her sort of loving acceptance of me uh, made an enormous difference and and also kept me here. I've never wanted to leave that I ever wanted to leave. Um, but I do, um, I do get my sustenance, I think, from meetings that are um, more geared to the literature because then the sharing is, you know, people are getting more deeply involved into the principles of the program. Um, what can I 
close with um, that will be the best thing you ever heard in your whole life uh, and make you want to come back forever. Um, I do consider myself a lifer. Um, I think the... Um, <laughs> I think I owe, um, again, I owe a debt that can only be repaid as I continue to, you know, give back to this program, uh, or can never be repaid, but uh, I do consider myself a lifer, and the two sponsors, the two long-term sponsors that I had before I've, I've had my current sponsor for, I guess, eight years, but the two sponsors that I have, both of them, um, both of them died abstinently. And the first sponsor um, that died abstinently died with the longest abstinence in OA at that time. And she was a incredible guiding force in in my um, my spiritual life. I mean, she was an amazing woman and always so loving and accepting. And then my second sponsor, diff- totally different kind of woman, but also died abstinently. And that's, um, that's something that, you know, whether I've got, you know, another several months or whether I've got another 20 years, um, I, my, my intention uh, one day at a time is to die abstinently. So thank you very much. There's a, going to be a slight uh, space on the tape, um, and I'll fill as best I can. Uh, it's a shame that the people who are listening to the tape don't see that I just had my hair done. So, um, All right, so are there any questions that anybody would like to ask? Yes. Well, the question is, how do you deal with uncomfortable feelings? Um, my belief is that um, life itself will bring about uh, just living. I mean, going to work. I mean, associating with anyone, having a, any kind of a relationship will bring uncomfortable feelings. That, that's it's it's kind of like it's a given. You're going to have. You're going to have uncomfortable feelings. You're going to have really good feelings. You're going to have, you know, feelings of sadness. You're going to have feelings of joy. You're going to have, if you're going to live, feelings are part of what kind of uh, separate us from, I mean, we have feelings that register. They're they're what make us human beings. And... So I, I think I have some kind of acceptance of that. And then when the feelings, like you say, are intolerable or, or very strong or, or, or I'm very emotional about something, somebody has done me in or somebody has 
uh, upset with me. Somebody, I've hurt somebody's feelings. I've hurt somebody's feelings, or they've hurt mine. Um, I, I believe a lot in in employing the tools, just literally like like they're written. I mean, just um, you know, I'll try this one. I'll try this. One. You know, uh, they used to have a slogan uh, uh, before they added writing uh, uh, that spelled malt ass. I mean, that was the meetings, you know, that was the acronym for for our, our tools. And I think um, I will do the tools a lot, you know, in terms of just uh, not so much if the feelings are really uncontrollable or I'm really sad or I'm really upset about something or angry, um, I'll use, I probably will use the tools before um, I will go to a, you know a, a writing. I mean, you know, talking to. Um, I mean, doing something on the steps because it's it's just simple. You know, if this one. Were, you know, I'll go to a meeting. I'll go. You know, I'll go. To, I'll, I'll I'll look at the tools, and um, that's is that okay? Anybody else? Yes. Okay, that's a very good question. Um, and let me see if I can rephrase it. How did I discover through the the backdrop of the principles of the program who I really am and what's inside me, what 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 am I made of? Um, just to give you a little bit of background that I didn't talk about, as I was growing up, my father and my mother always um said I was dumb and stupid. Um, and I and I and I believed them. And I believed them because I really did believe I was dumb and stupid. They they were talking about things I didn't know. I would ask questions about what they were reading about in the paper and, and I didn't understand and okay. So that got set pretty early. As a result of being in the program and the the joy that I experienced from uh, helping another compulsive reader stimulated this thing in me uh, that I could be helpful to somebody, and um, and uh, that's <laughs> you knew to answer that, ask that question because that's what it says that 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 um, that that this man has the real answer that he has no attitude of holier than thou, nothing whatever except the sincere desire to be helpful. And when it occurred to me that I really liked that, I mean, that that was stimulating, I went back to school. Now, for somebody without having, you know, some physical recovery, without having some emotional and spiritual recovery, in this, I could have never gone back to school because I believed that all of my acting and all of my roles and all was how I fooled the general public that I really wasn't, I mean, you know, that I, that I really wasn't dumb and stupid because I knew the truth and they knew the truth. And so I I just, I shut up if they were talking about something, if they were talking about geography or where something was on the map, I just didn't say a word. And I listened intently and I played the part 
and I just figured that uh, I would keep it hidden from the public. So for me to risk going back to school, getting completing my bachelor's because I'd gone to all these universities and majored in drama and taken taken everything they said that I had to take and dropped those and added more drama classes. So I had 75 units from all around. And I went back to school and got my bachelor's and I got my master's right after that because um, I was learning about who I was. I was learning how I got shaped to be the way I am. And that I would have risked doing, that I would have risked being exposed on a, in a classroom level was unthinkable to me. Um, so um, I think that was the process. But I couldn't have done that until I worked the steps. So I went back to school at uh, 47. I, I'm finished at 50, you know, and so I could have not done it without this. Yes? Uh, how do you jump back into the steps and become complacent things are going somewhat well and you're Well, I, you know, I'm daily I'm, I'm, I'm doing an 11th step. I mean, I do it. I have a a disciplined way of of um, working the eleventh step that I do daily, no matter whether I'm complacent or not. And so it's like I do that no matter what. Um, but working the steps, um, you know, when they say practicing these principles in all our affairs, there's there's such a consciousness now. Although I don't do a written tenth step. Uh, I do occasionally do a written tense step, but I, I, I'm pretty clean. I, I, I'm pretty clean on a daily basis. But if I have something that is not getting resolved, I'll, I'll do a tense step. Um, and, and always it's good for me. Um, certainly I do get complacent too, but it's always good for me to steady myself with the first step because what I really am is powerless and there is one who has all power I mean I'm powerless and my life is unmanageable if I don't admit on some core level that somebody else is in charge and it's not me um, I don't think that's answered your question oh. Okay. If you have questions, please stay after the meeting.